My guests for today are the dynamic duo composer Bill Bolcom and his wife vocalist Joan Morris. Welcome to the show. Well, thank, thank you, so you Cecilia. Looking forward to this. Very much. Likewise. So, Bill, when most children are playing with toys outside, hula hooping or video games, doing science fair projects, by the age of 11, you were composing. What led you to composition? Uh, I just never thought of not doing it. I was always going to be a composer, and so I was. <laughs> you know, for that, so it happened. There's, I can't tell you the day that it happened. There was no great epiphany that suddenly said, hey, I got to compose. I just always have done it, certainly even before I remember. So it's, it's just one of those things, you know. It was already going, and it was a part of who you were. It just it, it, it sort of was. I mean, it was one of those things. I mean, there was no question of me saying, "Gee, I really want to be a composer." It just, I just was, <laughs> you know. So a lot of times, I'm on the radio and I talk about composers and artists, people who study with certain famous composers or people who ran in the same circles, and I have you right here before me. You studied with George Frederick McKay, who founded the composition department at the University of Washington. You studied with Darius Mio, the French composer, member of the group Les Cis, and you studied at the Paris Conservatory. What is your insight on those experiences? I'm always interested to learn what people have to tell me, and I take it all with a uh, you know, my own notion of things. I don't think that I've ever been a, uh, a follower of anybody's particular point of view, but I think I was having a very nice bunch of relationships with people like Mio and, and uh, well, George McKay. I was just a little boy when I started working with him, and uh, he was kind of really wonderful. He was very uh, much of a, you know, one day I was writing these you know this one piece that was kind of a full of tragic tragic thing and he said to me i was about eight or nine he says billy you're such a nice mommy and such a nice daddy why do you write all this sad music <laughs> and so that was a, that was about the one thing i remember from him but uh, he was really quite interested he was very much involved with education so i think he's sort of that point of view darius meal i met when in 1957 i went to aspen music festival and uh, I don't know, we just sort of bonded. He had a class of about, oh, maybe 10 people who came from all other places to study with him. And I was just one of them. And uh, very quickly, uh, it was clear that uh, he wanted to have more to do with me. He got me a scholarship at the Paris Conservatoire. So I would work there to be with him. And also I had to hurry up and learn French, which I spent a summer working on. You talked about you were not working together at first. How did your relationship influence your dynamics working together as musicians? When I realized how much he respected all kinds of music, you know, and, and he was friends with this lady that ran the record company. I, I got a gig there. Um, I worked in the office and oh, yeah. uh, the, the one that records. recorded, uh, None Such Records, Tracy Stern. And um, you know, we, we were going to try to do an album of Gershwin songs or something like that. She said, well, none such is a, 
a classic is a classical label you know i couldn't do that she said why don't you go back to the turn of the century and do you know those like after the ball and i had been an off broadway show called the drunkard barry manilow was the music director we were supposed to camp up all those songs to celia so i had to get over that attitude stop doing that as something just to send up that's right but it was the only thing was that uh that was what made us different because we didn't send things up right and that's what it was just we did them straight and uh you know but with with fun and uh oh i put all my training into you know putting those songs over i felt so honored to do those things Bill, I read in a couple of places that you seek to erase the boundaries between serious music and pop music. Do you think that you have accomplished that goal? Why is that important to you? Well, first of all, it was never separated until people start talk, talked about how to make some money from it. Because I think people used to look at, uh, if you look at Haydn, for example, there are these little pop tunes that of course of his time that you know this comes to hit you right in the face there's no question of trying to be a director or you know anything else it's just you know that they just appeal directly and i think certain things some music will come out and appeal to you directly other music takes time and it's just like the difference between having a hamburger and a really very good uh, uh say a buffon dobe or something and you know it's just that there are things you uh, know something you can go further or you can go for a simple thing and those are things that if your whole musical language allows it to go from the simple to the complex which is what we almost didn't let happen when we sort of this is this kind of music this is that kind of music and then people didn't don't you don't have, you don't have to be in your best behavior every minute but you want to be intrigued you want to be pulled in you want to be uh, somehow included and you want them to want to be that way. So you do what you can to do that. But it was mainly because it was important for us to find out. But these are the, this is the American language. This is our music language. This is our stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so we, if you, if you absorb that and include that in the whole thing, you know, the possibilities are just endless. And they're much more fun than if trying to say, no, this is only over there, but you've got to put it in that drawer and you can't believe, uh, no, you can't have it anywhere else. So that's that. So this is the kind of thing we found ourselves thinking, well, we, I don't think we ever had to say anything else, but, but just by doing it the way we've done. Right. We showed our respect and our love for the thing. You are no stranger to pro musica. You allow Pro Musica to do the Michigan premiere of your collection of cabaret songs uh, back almost 20 years ago to the date this month. My golly. Yeah, 20 years ago at at the DIA. Golly, well, that's right. (laughs) And, and, And now you're having this concert, which is honoring you and celebrating all of your work. Can you talk about that full circle experience? Well, to start with, I just have to look at the program we're going to be doing. Uh, I did an opera called A View from the Bridge, which was, of course, a famous Arthur Miller play. But I had a chance to be able to work on operatizing it with his uh, help and and uh, collaboration. Uh, that was a wonderful thing, to work with a writer like that. And so we did that. So the first thing is that, uh, the New York Lights, The View from the Bridge, that's a song which uh, people have often done it turns out to be a 
a lot of audience. I mean, uh, it's it's audience friendly. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's it's very tonal. It's very. Oh, opening night! It got such a such a hand. They had to stop the show. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that's done by Neil Michaels, who's a cantor, which is fine. Cantors often do that one. It's pretty possible. Then after that comes a. Uh, 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 Violet, one of the spring trios. I got very much involved with the classical, uh, classic, uh, classical uh, uh, ragtime that we have, you know, which is just like Scott Joplin and and all those people, which I had a lot to do with bringing to to the public over the years, because they seemed again it was like accepting that that's all part of our background, that's all part of what we are, and let's enjoy it, and let's celebrate it, and let's see how it relates to the rest of our world, just as we should do with whatever we do, that, that has wonderful uh, life-giving properties. So that's kind of what happened there. The next piece I said you're going to pull out by Graceful Ghost. Now, I did arrangements of Graceful Ghost, which is probably my hit verses. Most people seem to believe have heard it, or maybe have heard of it, or so. On. And uh, that's how uh, that that got connected. But I was asked to make arrangements of it for well, one of them was for violin and piano. This is one that Sonia Lee will play with with uh, Mark Andre Hamlin, who's a fantastic, you know, Canadian performer. He's got, he's just about to bring out a complete recording of all my piano legs on Hyperion should be out any time, maybe out now, but this is just the worst wonderful musician. You're going to have a premiere of your piano sonata by Marc-Andre Amelin. Can you talk about that, which is coming up in this concert on May 15th? A fantasy sonata is a sonata that doesn't necessarily fit the exact uh, the grand plan of how a sonata is made, but I mean, I, 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 it feels like a sonata, but it's not made like a sonata. That's why I called it a fantasy sonata. But uh, so that's why uh, it's worked out that way. But also, but I mean, Mark is one of the great pianists, and so uh, I think we should feel particularly lucky that he's going to be doing doing that. So this is one of the great ones at all. And as I said, he's going to be coming out with this old recording now of my piano regs, which is going to be sensational. Bill and Joan, I'd like to thank you for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to the concert on the 15th of May and uh, meeting you in person, you and Joan in person. I cannot wait. Okay. Yep. And, and we'll do an in-person hug. Yes. <laughs>